Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. Um, uh, James in his uh, book-lined bunker with an MG34 in the background. Uh, who are we talking to today and what about? Because this is very interesting. I think this is a thing people may not um, have glanced upon, perhaps. Yeah, well, hence, hence the kind of, you know, snaffling up our next guest. So yeah. um, it's Peter Kent, and Peter and I met in Washington, D.C., um, just a month or two ago, and uh, when I was in town doing all that research trip, and mm. Peter and I, P- Peter is a young lawyer. I think that's right in saying, is that, I'm a, yep, a young lawyer, um, but but with a passion for the subject, and has done a special study of Operation Retribution. And I'm not going to explain any more about what that is right now. Yes, but, because, but, 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 because because that's not the, on the tip of people's tongues. What on earth? That it's, uh, yeah, what, what a great what, name! What, is it? what a great name for an operation as well. Let's, let's amazing let's name get that for an operation. Way. Especially given as it's, well, it's a tiny breadcrumb. It's a, it's a British operation, isn't it? And the British tend not to go for, um, you know, uh, names that have those kind of uh, vibes, do they? They don't. But let me just say to, about Peter. So Peter, got, Peter and I got <laughs> chatting and I said, that's a great idea. And, he's, and he'd written this article and he sent it over to me. It was fantastic. I said, listen, you've got to come on and talk about this. You know, we, we want these little kind of um, un, unpicked corners. And here he is before us, with also with his book-lined room behind us, but there on the shelf, just above his right shoulder, yeah. is a bust of Admiral Cunningham, but this ABC is why himself. I, this is why I mentioned That's your... That's a very, very strong presentation, Peter. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you both very much, and, and thanks for noticing my, my Cunningham bust. I'm very proud of it. And, uh, you should be. I, I, I agree with you, Jim. I'm, I'm a huge fan of... Admiral ABC. So I'll I'll be a little biased, but I'll try to temper it uh, throughout our conversation today. <laughs> so first of all, how did you end up alighting on this particular? Before we even talk about what it is, why has this caught your interest? What's the what's the story? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I grew up as a as a history fan, as as uh, you know, probably both of you did as well. And uh, but I had these kind of parallel interests in the Second World War, particularly in North Africa, and then just naval history in general, probably. Uh, you know, stemming from reading the Horatio Hornblower novels as a, as a kid. That's so and good. That's so, and good. so yeah. you know, over time, the, the two interests converged on Operation Retribution, uh, which, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but is the blockade of Tunisia right at the end of uh, the war for North Africa. So uh, May 1943, the British blockade the coast, stopping any evacuation uh, out of North Africa let me of t- the Germans and Italians. Let me just ask you one thing, Peter. Are you a fan of Master and Commander, the film? <laughs> I, I am. I am. And I, I've heard rumors that they're uh, making another one, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, here's hoping. <laughs> it's just, I just watched it again the other day. I, I, um, I was on our sister podcast. They did a triple bill on, on the Battle of Trafalgar, and it got, me, it, it got me so excited that I rushed out and watched Master and Commander again. And uh, do you know what? It hasn't dated. It's, it's supremely good. 
It hasn't. I, I watched it just a few months ago, actually. It's one of those films you have to watch, I think, you know, every year or so yeah. just to remind yourself of oh, how okay. fun it is yeah. and how good it is. I agree. So <laughs> you said it there. It's the Operation Retribution is the blockade of, of Tunisia at the end of the North Africa campaign. And it's ABC. It's Admiral Cunningham who's implementing this. Tell us the story. How does it come about? Are they? Are, is this a thing that's they've been planning for a while? Because obviously it looks like the end game's coming. Or is this the thing that's improvised and stuck together quite quickly? Well, well yeah, all those are great questions. But I've, do you know what I've just suddenly realised? I don't think in all the 500 and whatever episodes we've done, we've never really talked about ABC at all. I mean, only in, in passing. Glancing, glancing reference to Crete. Um, glassing reference to Crete, yeah. Glassing reference right. to Kate Matapan, possibly. But yeah. should, we, should we just do a little bit of backdrop on backstory on, on, on ABC? Go on then, Peter. You're <laughs> the one with the bust. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think he's a great place to start because he really is. He as a commander and he as a person and as a personality are really central to this operation. It's it's a very personal operation for him. Um, if we want to go all the way back to the beginning, he's he's you know ten or eleven years old in boarding school, and his father writes him a letter and says, uh, you, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Which you know is quite a quite a letter to get from a father. And Cunningham, very precociously but maybe deservedly so, writes back, uh, "Father, I should like to be an admiral." Um, <laughs> and it's, so you know, if if that doesn't set him up, I, I don't know what does. Um, <laughs> He goes on. He, he serves a dis, as a destroyer captain in, in the First World War. He's he's uh, involved in the Gallipoli campaign. Um, I think that kind of uh, is important for him as well. He's he's really a lover of the of the destroyers. He's a destroyer man mm. at heart. Um, Retribution is a really a destroyer heavy operation. Um, and then he you know he's he's commander in chief of the Mediterranean fleet uh, from 1940 or so into 1943. Um, you know, involved in all the famous. So, so a- ABC is just completely wedded to the Mediterranean. Um, it's a, it's a, in many ways yeah. it's his kind of spiritual home. He's been based there as commander in chief of the Mediterranean fleet in the 1930s on Malta. Um, and at the start of the war, one of the first major actions that he's involved with is is the Battle of Cape Matapan. Well, before we get into that, Jim, before we get into you know before we, the, the shooting starts, what's he like? Who is he? What's he been doing? Because if he's, if he's, um, you know, he's obviously been flag ranked for a while. You know, he's been an admiral for, in the thirties, isn't he? What's he like? Yeah. What's what's his? Is he is he tough? Is he is he cool? Yeah. Is he um, uh, a hard taskmaster? What what, what what kind of guy is he? Well, I, I guess I'll start, Jim. You probably know more than I do, but I'll, I'll start with kind of my impressions of him. I think yeah, he's. Yeah, he, he's a he's a well liked admiral. He's very well respected among the sailors serving under him. Yeah. He's he's uh, he's tough in kind of a fair way, I would say. Um, a taskmaster again in kind of a fair way. He doesn't suffer fools, um, but he he has a, a, a um, I think Jim, you write in one of your books, kind of a wry smile lurking underneath. So he does have this sense of humor. Um, and this um, kind of personal connection with the men he serves with. Um, he knows most of the captains he's serving with in, in the Mediterranean. He knows them personally. Um, so he, he enjoys a very good working relationship, especially among the Mediterranean fleet. Um, we see later this carries over to, you know, as he's building the cooperative kind of relationships with the, the, the Americans when they show up. He, he's, he's very good at working well with other people, while at the same time, being very 
serious and, and, and uh, kind of duty bound and task oriented. Um, he's going to get the job done, but he's, he's, um, you know, hoping to work well with his, with his uh, superiors and his subordinates along and, the way. And he's Royal Navy through and through. So he's Dartmouth. He's the, he's the, Absolutely. He's the whole Absolutely. thing. And yep. because he's the, the great, the great quote is, you know, it takes the Navy three years to build a ship. It takes a hundred years right. to build a new reputation or whatever. Um, that, 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 a new and, and he's all those things that, that, that Peter says. And, and what I love about him is you can see pictures of him. And he, you know, when he, even when he's sort of just posing for photograph, you can just see just the edge of a smirk. On, on on his face and he's and his side of his eyes are just absolutely lined with 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 crow's feet you know so he's a real you know that's not just from sort of squinting in the sun of the mediterranean that's also just because he's you know he's got a, a keen sense of humor you know he's 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 no nonsense at all the key thing about cunningham is he gets the three levels of war he's a strategist um he's an operational level man he's a Tactical, tactically, he's incredibly sound. He's also a very, very aggressive um, uh, um, flag officer, which I think is really important. And when you think about, you know, so often British commanders in the Second World War have been labelled being a bit stodgy, a bit cautious, a bit all this kind of stuff. You do not get that with, with ABC. His memoirs are A Sailor's Odyssey. Is this kind of massive thick tome and it's it's just an absolute bible for anyone who's studying the navy in the second world war it's really fantastic and, and again the humor lovely turns of phrase just constantly picking up and there's this fantastic bit of the battle of cape catapan where they take um, cape matapan where they take on the uh, italian fleet in march 1941 i think it is and he says i had the thrill and the honor to um to give the order engage the enemy for the first time since Nelson's day in the Mediterranean. And, and I think that's absolutely key. He's, he's um, uh, a, a, a sailor who understands the tactics, the strategy that's going on, but also the emotion of the moment that he's in. You see that with that line right. at, at Cape Matapan. And, and the order he gives to begin retribution, I think, is worth mentioning too. He says, sink, burn, and destroy, let nothing pass. So he understands kind of this emotional <laughs> moment Absolutely. I mean, it's just it kind of gives you goosebumps, right? I mean, he he's you mentioned Nelson. I think he's a Nelsonic admiral. Yeah, in, yeah he absolutely in, is in many ways. Yeah. And, and Nelson's um, and he his great hero, isn't he? Nelson is his absolutely. absolute hero, and he models his command style very much on Nelson. This idea of looking absolutely. after the men, making sure they're okay, but leaving absolutely nothing, you know, no page unturned, no 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 detail kind of overlooked. Absolutely, he he really understands the emotion of 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 the moment for for the, you know, the grander strategy of, of the battle he's fighting at the, at the moment, but also for the men involved. He, he, you know, he's, he's thinking of his sailors, um, alongside the strategy and the tactics. So, so sort of self-consciously Nelsonian flag command style that, 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 yeah. that in the traditions of the Royal Navy, he's one of those, he's one of those, one of those people. Okay. Excellent. So, um, come May 43 and, and James and I, have, we've just done a week of, um, uh, uh, about El Alamein and, and I think we're going to end up having to do a week about what happens in Tunisia and what, what, what follows. We'll certainly torch to Tunisia maybe is our next, our next thing, Jim, for North Africa. Our next epic. But, but, but by, by the, the end of April, well, by April, it's clear which way things are, which things, way things are definitely going to go in in Tunisia. The, the Germans are done. It's a question of how it's it's a question of how they're done rather than uh, how and when they're done. So Cunningham prepares for this eventuality of blo- of blockading the, the the Germans into Tunisia. 
He does. Uh, but I, I prepares might even be a, a strong word. I think okay. when you look at the official dates of retribution, it's May 8th through the 13th. It's, it's very short, five days. But when you look at the actual activity, what the what his ships, what his fleet are actually doing, um, it hasn't really changed since November 1942 or so. You know, the victory of El Alamein, uh, the torch landings, which we're recording this on the anniversary, I'll, I'll note. Yeah. Um, yeah so it, 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 retribution is, it, as an official operation, is, like I said, a, a quiet five-day um, um, action. But really, his fleet, uh, his destroyers are are doing this, this same activity for six months. And, and if you look at it from that lens, it's a much um, right. more brutal, a, a bloodier struggle. Um, so by the time he gives that order, by the time he says sink, burn and destroy, let nothing pass, he actually doesn't need to issue any further, more detailed commands that his his destroyer captains, uh, his submarine, you know, uh, his MTBs, they know exactly what they're doing. So, yes, he's preparing for it, but his fleet has been doing this um, for six months now um, and, and they know exactly what to do. He doesn't need to tell them what to do. Yeah. Uh, and Peter, the key, the key to this, of course, is is. And this is a theme that Al and I kind of return to all the time, is shipping. This is all about shipping. So the only way the Axis forces can resupply themselves is obviously by the sea lanes and by sending over kind of new giant Messerschmitts, these sort of huge machines, these six-engine monsters that that come over. And, you know, when you think about all the other things that, that, that Hitler and the Nazis have got their sort of hands full with, you would argue that you could argue, and argue fairly convincingly that, that, Maybe this isn't the kind of priority they need to be focusing on, but they do. And the point is, is that that Hitler massively reinforces Tunisia, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, with tiger Absolutely. tanks and with troops, and and you know, but by the end, it is still lots of Italians, but it's also lots of really, really good, good German troops as well. Absolutely, uh, German troops and and German material. Lots of tanks, uh, 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 aircraft are rushed in from all over. Uh, you know, coming from the Eastern Front. Uh, submarines are sent from the Atlantic, which, you know, wow. they really can't be spared. He, he, I think he sends seven or so submarines right. from the Atlantic into the Mediterranean. Um, and so they're fighting a losing battle. I mean, as you've mentioned in, in your last week, the El Alamein week, um, you know, the, the tide has turned in North Africa and, and they're fighting a lose, losing battle at this point, the, the Germans and Italians. And yet they continue to reinforce it. Um, you know, we can we can talk about the naval reinforcements, the the army reinforcements, or the air force reinforcements. All three of them. Well, the are, whole extra um, army is brought over because yeah. you've got the, you've got the Panzer army, and then you've got von Arnim's army. Yeah. Where are they? Where are they shipping from, Peter, to get the to get to Tunisia? Because because if Cunningham's so active in the Med, how are the Germans getting people to Tunisia successfully? Is it at great cost? Yeah. It's at unbelievable cost. Uh, coming from Sicily and, and Italian ports. Uh, the Italian Navy is tasked with bringing over these reinforcements uh, up until about March when they finally realize we have to cut our losses and the Italian Navy is not up to its, co- up to its task. But they're losing uh, ships to an unbelievable degree. Um, uh, y- you know, the, the, the uh, Cunningham bases uh, Force Q, a, a, a fleet of cruisers in, in, in uh, the port of Bone, Algeria, and almost immediately, they just uh, intercept these Italian convoys. I think it's their first night on station, December 1st. They intercept an Italian convoy and just absolutely obliterate it. Um, 
the, the, the British fleet suffers, you know, splinter damage, it reports. And it, meanwhile, it sinks, you know, 14 merchant vessels or so, uh, you know, 20,000 casualties, uh, sorry, 2,000 casualties. Um, so, so absolutely, the Italian Navy is suffering disastrously bringing these uh, soldiers across. They, they continue with what one historian calls a fatalistic disregard for reality. Um, and they, they, they call it, they, they call this, this convoy route, they call it La Rota della Morte, which is the, the route of death. So they, they understand that the Italian sailors at least understand that this is folly maybe, but they, they continue doing so. It is incredible, isn't it? It is amazing that they keep doing this. It's like the Japanese sort of going, continuing to go down the same wadi every night and keep mm. getting shot up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's just this, it's, it's just so mad. Well, but, but um, this is the thing we talked about the other day. We touched Jim, on it, didn't we? Yeah. If, if you're going to fight at the Mediterranean, surely the thing to do is sit tight in Italy and Sicily and make the Allies come to you rather than serve yourselves up on a plate in a, you know, the, the, straight, the Straits of Sicily are then most narrow, what, 200 kilometres? So it's, it's all quite easily policed, isn't it, if you're... Yeah. If you're the Royal Navy, once you've sorted out air dominance as well, you know it all gets all gets a lot easier, a lot quicker, doesn't it? Yeah, and if you look at the German records, they they refer to this as kind of a time of defiance, and so even maybe underlying this, they understand that they they can't win, but yet they're defiantly trying to hold Tunisia. Um, you know, Hitler sends Karl Donitz down there. He sends uh, Friedrich Rouge, these naval commanders, to try to sort out what's going on and how to save it. He writes that Tunisia is the forefield of Europe and has to be held. Um, they're fighting a losing battle. Maybe they know it, but they're not going to give up. I mean, it's very in line with, you know, Hitler's orders to the to the east. You know, we can't forget that what's going on in the east is, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad. And but at least, it's, it's, but at least, I mean, what's 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 perverse about this is at least the east fits into Hitler's worldview and his and his sort of, you know, his political world ambition. Tunisia doesn't. Yeah. It's not like it's not right. like he was banging the table in 1933 saying, and, and just you wait till we uh, defeat the British in Tunisia. He, you know, his sights were Absolutely. set firmly east. Uh, uh, Absolutely. It's so peculiar in terms... I mean, it really shows the sort of vacuum at the heart of German strategic thinking that this is even happening at all. You can understand yeah. it being Italy's preserve, but but possibly... Well, and this is, this is the whole... Italy, the, but, Anyway, and the other point, of course, is, is that you use your bigger ships first because that's its economies of scale and it makes most sense to use them. So the ships are getting smaller and smaller. And the smaller they are, the easier right. they are to kind of shoot up. And, and not only the ships are getting smaller, but the convoys are getting smaller. The Italians resort to sending, you know, loading up their destroyers with troops and trying to shoot them across in, in, in single, uh, you know, alone or in, in groups of one or two. Um, and they're they're intercepted just as easily. Uh, I mean, the 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 Straits of Sicily, as you said, are only about 150 miles, you know, 200 or so kilometers, and they're just packed with British destroyers, MTBs, submarines. Um, so so, you know, it, as I said, it's a it's a fatalistic disregard for the reality. What we shouldn't forget, though, is that it, before May, before the official dates of retribution, is the, the British fleet is suffering as well. Uh, you know, this is not an easy fight uh, in these, these, you know, November, December, January months. Um, they're suffering uh, uh, seriously as well. So what kind of losses are they? I mean, is this from largely from U-boats? U-boats and air attack. Uh, I mentioned the Force Q attack on that first night in station when they, they obliterated the, the um, Italian convoy. 
the return to their port, their home port, was not as successful. They were caught out at daybreak and intercepted by German uh, aircraft. Uh, they lost. Uh, the destroyer Quentin was sunk. Kibron was was heavily damaged, I believe. Um, so at this point, I mean, we think of the end of North Africa as this period when when, you know, allied air power ruled the skies. And that's really not the case yet. Um, you know, November, December, January. Oh, yes. Yeah, still it's not, very much. Uh, uh, that's also because yeah. a lot of I mean, Tunisia has been been massively reinforced. I mean, the, the, the right. counterpoint of that is that by between November um, 1942 and May 1943, I think the Luftwaffe lose something like 2,400 aircraft just in the Mediterranean alone. I mean, that, just think about what that is. I mean, that that is literally the entire Luftwaffe that's available against Britain at the beginning of July 1940. So, you know, that is a huge number. I think it's worth talking about the air power at this stage because th- this stage yeah, for the German Luftwaffe, this stage is absolutely devastating and it, it doesn't really recover. It's a crux, isn't it? Um, I- Absolutely. And, and I actually pulled up some of these numbers just to have them ready. But from November to May, as you say, the, the uh, German Luftwaffe loses about 2,500 aircraft. Yeah, OK. So which, I'll be a little bit off. Just in the Mediterranean. And that, that's 40 percent of their total strength at the time. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. incredible. Their, their transport aircraft is, is absolutely obliterated. They have to shut down training schools. They have to sh- not just transport schools, but the bomber schools. Uh, their transport aircraft alone doesn't really recover. Uh, that, in conjunction with the, the failed airlift in Stalingrad, just you know, obliterates any air transport capabilities. Um, so this this What's period it, the, it's is, a Messerschmitt three six three, isn't it? Isn't that the that, the, 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 the gigantic the, the giant glider yeah. thing that they put engines on? Yeah, yeah. yeah they, I, I think they lose six of them in Tunisia alone. Um, you know, and these aren't replaceable aircraft at this point. Uh, the, 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 the Palm Sunday turkey shoot isn't there yeah the palm sunday massacre yeah yeah it's it's uh in in you know it, I, I think these records are are probably uh exaggerated a little bit but allies claim something like 90 victories in in 15 or 20 minutes and everywhere they were um, looking you know planes were german planes were trading down into the mediterranean below and all the rest of it and they call it a yeah. turkey shoot it's just amazing it is amazing, and, and this, it's not just fighters; it's transports uh, with with you know reinforcements on it on them, uh, bombers. They're they're shooting up the uh, airfields on the ground. So yeah, this is really a devastating time for for German air power. And this is American and British air power. Um, uh, in, so the Americans are in full flow by now. It's both in the theater. So it's both, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 if you look at if you look at who's involved, it's really kind of no surprise that Allied air power is so successful in this time. I mean, it has some of the probably some of the best air commanders uh, of the European War. I mean, uh, Mary Cunningham uh, from the Desert Air Force, uh, Tedder, uh, and then on the American side, Spatz, who's, yeah, who's yeah. obviously you know he's he's new and he's he's actually some of his conversations with Cunningham show his his readiness and his eagerness to learn. Uh, but he, he's really phenomenal. And then Doolittle, who's, who's you know, sure. more famous for his raid on Tokyo, but he's, he's really uh, quite successful here yeah. in North Africa and, and, as and well. Don't, and don't forget Pete Casado, who later becomes one of the sort of the great, great air commanders of, of, of the ETO of, of Northwest Europe and D-Day Absolutely. and all the rest of it. I mean, the interesting thing is also, you know, we talked last when we were doing the Alamein, we, we were talking about the importance of that, of that partnership between Mary Cunningham and Tommy Elmhurst as his kind of sort of number two. Well, Tommy Elmhurst is still absolutely on the scene, but, but um, by, from February 1943 onwards, 
Cunningham has become commander of the first North African tactical air force. This is the first allied tactical air force that has ever been created. And, and he's the commander. But his number two is a guy called Larry Cooter, who's one of the bomber men. But also, he's the guy who post-war um, is in charge of writing the, the U.S. Air Force's doctrine. And much of it is based on what he learns um, in his time in Tunisia. And it's really interesting because Mary Cunningham and Larry Cooter and Tommy Elmhurst all get on like a house on fire. They are like super tight within nanoseconds and they have morning prayers every morning in their little kind of sort of caravan encampment in the in the olive groves in northern northern tunisia uh and they just spend their time kind of sort of thinking about how they can get better and how they can do things better and how they can improve the situation and all the rest of it and the, you, you can see there is this this palpable level of excitement that we're really onto something and of course the interesting thing about the development of their power is, is as you were saying peter that Germany particularly really massively reinforces Tunisia in in the back end of 1940-42. And to start off with, it, it's in the north. It's, it is the Luftwaffe who have the upper hand, but then it massively turns around, between, particularly between February and, you know, early April. It's, it's a total transformation, which is what enables you to get into the situation where you can really support this. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. Hello, We Have Ways listener. Every year, I'm inundated with texts and phone calls asking what I, a Second World War obsessive, would like for Christmas. Luckily, our friends at Osprey Publishing have a solution. With over a thousand books on the Second World War, Osprey Publishing's titles range across the breadth of the war, from the opening Blitzkrieg to the fall of Japan. If military hardware is what tickles your fancy, then they've got you covered. Tanks, planes, ships, weapons, from the humbled Piat to the Essex-class aircraft carrier. They've got the lot. They've got tomes on every conceivable unit in the conflict, including the Finns, Yugoslavs, Vichy French and Cossacks, and across battles in every theatre. But that's not all. Osprey have books on a wide range of military history subjects, from ancient times to present day, such as the recently published Dunkirchen 1940 by Robert Kershaw. Putin's Wars, Chechnya to Ukraine by Mark Galliotti and Meat Grinder, The Battles for the Reserve Salient by Prit Batar, to name a few. So, next time Aunt Susan asks you what you'd like for Christmas, tell her to visit ospreypublishing.com for the perfect military history book or gift. I'm off there now. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. If you think of the, I mean, the even bigger picture for the Luftwaffe, the, the, the bomber offensive is about to step up into the spring of 1943, isn't it? That the Allied bomber offensive. So you've lost 40% of your strength in essentially a backwater theatre at a time where you're about to come under. You know, they don't know for sure that the strategic bomber offensive is about to go up a gear over Germany, but it is, isn't it? So of all the time to be, of all the times to be expending pilots and kit and people and and materiel um on on this theater it's it's i mean it's the, I, I, you know we've talked talk this is a recurrent theme on the on the podcast is how bad german strategic thinking is but this is another a, a, another great example you're expending 40 percent of your strength at the precise minute you're going to need it over germany to defend Germany itself. I mean, it also shows that how the Allies, the Allies can pull levers on different sides of the world and make the Germans, pull the Germans from pillar to post, basically. Yeah. So, go on, Jim, what were you going to say? Well, no, I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And this is why I think Tunisia is such an interesting battle, battle you know, such an interesting campaign. And if I had my time again... I would, you know, to, to revisit Tunisia, I, I would I would probably frame it in a slightly different way than I have already, because I think I was rather underplaying the significance of it in the wider wider war, particularly the wider war in the West. And it is this moment where suddenly everything starts to come together. You know, the, the, uh, the Americans are transformed from being this kind of, you know, very green army when they touch down on, in November 19, 1944 through to, I mean, 1942 rather, through to actually, you know, the, and, the, and the, the classic case is the 34th Red Bulls Division who, who sort of run away at Fonduc, but, but then see off four counterattacks by the Germans on Hill 609 at the very end of the campaign. And Alexander actually puts them at the head of the kind of victory parade in Tunis. Um, later on, and um, but at the same time, it's this harnessing of naval power with land power with air power, and seeing it again as a circle, which is you know you don't ever want to break. The, the you know one leads into the other, leads into the other, leads into the other. It's this sort of symbiotic kind of relationship, and they're just starting to kind of work out how they're going to do stuff, how they're going to work together, how they're going to use these these three facets of 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 fighting. And you're absolutely right, Al, because what they're doing is they're 
they're making the Germans suddenly, I mean, they've always done this with the Italians, but they're certainly making the Germans dance to their tune in a really emphatic way rather than the other way around. You know, Hitler always thinks that he's controlling things and he's controlling events by making these decisions to reinforce here and, you know, and this. but actually he's losing total control. Absolutely. This, this is very much the, the allied game and, and the Germans and Italians are sucked into playing it. Um, you know, they don't really, apart from cutting their losses and abandoning Tunisia, they don't really have many options. Uh, perhaps the worst option is the one they choose to start reinforcing it. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this, you see, you know, as you say, this is everything coming together for the, for the new battlefield alliance. It's, um, you know, I think if you use Cunningham as kind of a pivot point, you see kind of the cooperating uh, personalities coming together. We talked about the air power. I mean, he has an excellent relationship with Spatz. Uh, um, there's this, this moment where um, Cunningham tells Spatz, who's new on the scene, he says, we need air cover for my, you know, my fleet in the Straits of Sicily. And Spatz goes off. He says, yeah, I'll take care of it. Um, Cunningham is you know, somewhat confused. He thinks, you know, would you like my advice? You know, I've, I've been here for a while. I, I know what I need. And Spatz says, no, no, I, I know what to do. I'll take care of it. And Cunningham later writes, you know, Spatz was back in less than a week saying, um, Admiral, I have to admit, I know nothing about covering uh, naval forces. Uh, could you teach me what to do? And, and, and from then on, this partnership grows and it's, it's really a, a, a successful partnership. You see that as well, you know, with his superiors, Cunningham, deals very well with Eisenhower. He, he, they yeah, they get on really proper. well, don't they? And they're, to get, they're really together well. in, in Gibraltar on the eve of Torch. Uh, absolutely. And then in Algeria, their their offices are next to each other. They share a garden. Um, you know, they, they refer to each other as proper buddies. Um, so, you know, some of, the, some of this is post-war writing to, you know, you know everything is a little rosy, but, but they really do get together, get along very well. Um, Eisenhower meets with Cunningham after the Battle of Kasserine Pass and, and discusses how to, you know, uh, kind of temper this inter-service uh, or inter-allied, um, you know, uh, stresses and pressures and what did, what went wrong for the Americans. So uh, Eisenhower is very much leaning on Cunningham. You see these 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 partnerships coming together. This is really a period um, of, of, of cooperation coming together and, and progress made leaps and bounds by this this new battlefield partnership. Yeah, and I, I you know, it, it, it reinforces the sort of feeling that I got when I was first doing all this work on on the North Africa campaign, that the the sort of Anglophobia of American senior officers and the Americophobia of, of senior British officers has been massively exaggerated. I, I really think it has. Uh, and again, you know, when one compares them to relationships between between the the Germans and the and the Italians for example i mean obviously it's a marriage made in heaven but but i think you see fewer um disputes on national lines uh, and much more just on you know where, where there's disputes is, is personality and sometimes those personality disputes can be exacerbated by cultural differences you know there's lots and lots of it for, for everyone who says oh you know they didn't get along i can give you double if not three or four times the number of people who get on absolutely yeah. famously but and there's also but there's also this american complete american eagerness to learn is there? they're arriving that you know absolutely and when what's happening in tunisia as well learning from the mistakes so shaking things down if things aren't working out firing people as well if they're not fitting in but also then going right so what do we do and how do we shake this down and figure it out and it's that tight carder of people in you know in the usaf and in the army basically small groups of people are all desperate to 
figure solve the puzzle and figure the puzzle out. And it's a really the the, the, the Americans are really strikingly sort of open ended in their attitude to to learning, aren't they? They don't arrive saying, oh, we know how we're going to do things around here, boys. They don't They don't arrive. In a way, they don't arrive with what a, a stereotypical British impression of an American would be. That's The Americans breeze into town and say, we're going to do things our way. They arrive and go, right, how the hell are we going to beat the Germans? What, what do you know? What can you tell us? And I think that's really... That's really fascinating. That's again, like Jim says, it runs against the it runs against the grain of this idea that the British and the Americans don't particularly get along. You mentioned the the army and the the air forces and their eagerness to learn. I'd, I'd add, you know, Admiral Hewitt, who's the American uh, kind of senior American naval officer on the scene. He works famously well with Cunningham as well. So it, it's all three services. You know, among the Americans, you know, the, the, the men at the top are, are showing an eagerness to learn from the from the Brits. And I understand that the British have been there and they've been fighting this battle for a, for a few years. I mean, I mean, the other thing is, is actually when it boils down to it, nearly all the um, the sort of accusations of America phobia are always with a handful of super ego generals. <laughs> rather than admirals or, or, you know, it's all Patton, Monty, Mark Clark, isn't it? I mean, it, it always is. You know, and again, if you just take those out of the equation and think about the other two equally important facets of, of war operations, i.e. what's going on in the air and what's going on the ground, you don't have those issues. And nothing like to the same degree. Of course, you have spats, you have arguments and stuff, but basically they're getting on incredibly well. And it's really worth underlying just how successful the, the the kind of the final results in Tunisia are. I mean, in terms of you know, you you've cited two thousand five hundred Luftwaffe aircraft. You know, there's quarter of a million access troops. I don't know how many ships it is. You said, but it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, the Italians lose just under five hundred ships I in this period. God, um, so and, 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 many and absolutely ir- irreplaceable. All of these. Yeah. I mean, you know, the aircraft is there. The the uh, Axis war economy cannot you know, replace these aircraft. Italian Navy certainly cannot be rebuilt at this point. Um, so it, it, it's just a devastating period. A quarter of a million, the same number of soldiers, you know, uh, encircled and captured at Stalingrad, yeah. you know, in, in roughly the same time period. I mean, it's really devastating. And I think that's where, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that retribution, you know, is probably an, you know, an unfamiliar name to, to many listeners and many, uh, uh, you know, students of history. It's because the actual Operation Retribution captures between 700 and 900 enemy troops. It's really, it, it's a scorecard lacking in any real distinction. But it, that forgets the larger context of this. This this operation right. enabled the capture of a quarter million troops. Yeah. Um, yeah. Coupled with the air air power, as we mentioned, it's it's um, I mean, that's, really an unbelievably successful operation. I mean, that, that's a mark of how closed the, down the sea is, isn't it? That in that week, there's not a lot going on because it's so effective. They plugged the gap. Did the Germans get anyone in or out? Is it the eighth, the thirteenth, or the seventh, thirteenth? Did they get right. anybody out? Well, may, maybe a handful, right. but uh, I guess uh, you know I'll just take a second to describe what those dates look like. Yes. It's uh, you know. Cunningham issues sink, burn, and destroy, let nothing pass, and his destroyer captains really take that to heart. The only evacuation attempts that uh, materialize are groups of fishing boats, rafts, even those those rubber dinghies, you know, from from you know for bombers that have to crash land at sea. Those are being used by individual and, and, and small groups of Germans and Italians to kind of row across to Sicily. Uh, it, so it's just an absolute pitiful attempt. There's no organized attempt. And the destroyers are are hunting them down um, 
well, Cunningham likes to stay away from the word revenge, but they really are hunting them down with a vengeance. Um, their stories from, you know, I'll, I'll just pull out two. Um, I think it's the uh, destroyer Tetcott uh, cites uh, a, a group of, of Germans and Italians aboard a raft in the in the Gulf of Tunis. And yeah, I, I, I think it's um, Richard Rycroft is lieutenant commander of Tetcott at this time. And he, he uh, speeds along towards uh, this raft of Germans and Italians and doesn't slow. And he passes right past them and drops a depth charge right on top of them. Uh, and as he writes in, in his, in his, you know, uh, ship's log, um, the, the original text says blowing it up. And someone then went, went back and crossed it out and said, blowing it to bits. Um, so it's really wow. kind of an emotional moment for these guys. Um, and, and they're, they're not an outlier. Zetland, um, you know, rams and capsizes a series of, of just small fishing boats with, you know, 10 or 20 Germans and Italians in it. Um, well, and they just, so it's they an just emotional blow them, moment. They just blow them out of the water. They just blow them out of the water. Um, and it's, it's, so it's an emotional moment. Uh, I, I don't think it's really a, a bloodthirsty moment. These sailors are doing, you know, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a brutal operation in those respects, but it, they have kind of an emotional sense of what they're doing. They have the memory of Greece and Crete. We talked about that a little bit. Um, so it's not just bloodlust or bloodthirstiness. Um, it's kind of a... a they want to put their mark on it. This is a final moment for them. They understand that this is the cap of the Mediterranean campaign. This is the moment they've been working towards for three years, you know? Um, so, so they want to, to have the yeah, most, because it's, 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 most it's, successful it's, operation. It's, it's not just a question of, of securing the North African shores. It's also about right. securing the North African waters. Uh, and that's what they're doing, aren't they? I mean, it is amazing, isn't it, Al, that, that we're so land-centric, aren't we? And I know we've said this a few times before, but, you know, I mean, who knows about Cunningham now? I mean, obviously I do because I kind of started my my Second World War life on, on Malta. And, and you know, he was one of the big guys in that one. But, I mean, for most people, he's, he's like Ramsey. He's just kind of disappeared into the... Ether. Well, especially as the Navy itself has disappeared from British imagination too, you know, that the, the, the got... So well, it's slightly laughed at now, isn't well, it? Well, it got wound, way, da- wound down after the war, and you know we went to submarines deterrent, and the last, the last, the last big navy thing is the Falklands War, which everyone thinks of again as an army of adventure. It was in fact all impossible to, to do without the Royal Navy getting everything, you know, right by their fingernails. It, I mean, it, it's it is it's a, it's a, it is a mark of how our of, of how the country's changed actually. The fact that the navy have faded from from view in in, in yeah, the UK I agree certainly. With that. Um, yeah. Well, it, Churchill even says that at the at the time he writes uh, much, if not all, of the Navy's work goes on unseen, and and the the fruits of the Navy's victory are collected on shore. Um, yeah, very so you know, it, there's even an yeah, it's an understanding at the time that the Navy was so successful that uh, you know their score scorecard, as I said, kind of lacks distinction, um, and that's just really a sign of their success rather than. <laughs> rather than anything else. I mean, it's like the train's running on time, isn't it? You only bother by trains when they're late. And if the Navy's just yeah. getting the job done... You, you, and, I mean, there is, there is still the political idea that the boots on the ground are where you, where you uh, defeat an enemy, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's about creating an operational situation that is advantageous to an army, isn't it? That's what navies are for, I suppose. Preparing the, preparing the battlefield strategically uh, or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I think so, and 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 that's kind of been the the navy, the the Mediterranean fleet's purpose throughout the Mediterranean War. I mean, uh, even when they're busy rescuing the army off of Greece and and Crete, 
the Admiralty and Churchill write to Cunningham say, uh, saying, great job. Don't forget to blockade the you know, port of Benghazi or don't forget to blockade Libya. Uh, so it, even when they're kind of in their most devastating moment for the Mediterranean fleet, Greece and Crete, these are absolutely horrific battles for them. The Admiralty is reminding them, hey, don't forget your job is to support these these land armies fighting ashore in, in North Africa and, and closing down these supply lines to, to enable the land victories. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, actually, when you when you when you tot up the numbers on Tunisia, it's really interesting, is it? Because it, there are still people who insist that that that, that it's the a Medi- sideshow. The Mediterranean is a sideshow. But if you've put a quarter of a million men in the bag and you've destroyed 40% of the Luftwaffe strength and their transport strength, which is the really important bit, that's yeah. the really important thing. You know, that's that's easily the same, arguably the same blow as uh, a strategic blow uh, as Stalingrad. And also with the naval element, you know, you were, you aren't sinking shipping in, uh, in 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 on the Eastern Front, are you? You aren't destroying the Germans' ability to deliver ships or the Italian ability to use shipping in the effort. So it's it's a three D victory, perhaps rather than a two D one, in in the in the strategic sense that that Stalingrad isn't, you know. Yeah, I, well, I would I would go along with that, and and it's it's interesting, you know, because you know we we've we've touched on it in the past that you you can't. You can't really put troop numbers, boots on the ground, as necessarily being a sort of marker of the of, of strategic importance. It, it can be, but it's not necessarily. And I think no. you know when you look at the losses in the Mediterranean. First of all, the, your, your two thousand five hundred from November to May, and then a further three thousand five hundred between May and I think it's October. You know that's that's six thousand aircraft six. Thousand aircraft yeah. lost lost yeah. on the southern front, not the eastern front. Yeah. In the same time, I think it's something like seven hundred are lost on the eastern front. Yeah, yeah. And 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 compare that to what what they gained by shipping these replacements to 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 fight the Tunisian battle. They kept the Mediterranean supply routes closed for a further six months or so. I mean, that's really all they gained. So this, these losses are just totally out of proportion yeah. for... And you only need to effort. keep those supply routes closed, really, if you're fighting there. But if you weren't <laughs> fighting there, it wouldn't be as pressing a requirement if you weren't fighting the British there. You, it's like you've, you've created your own problem and you've served yourself up to be, um, to be digested by the Allied war machine, basically. Because we talked, didn't we, Jim, about how, you know, the, the desert is the centre of British imperial gravity. You know, you can draw troops from all over the world to fight there don't have to send British soldiers there. And in fact, 8th Army is a quarter British or something, uh, really. You know, it's got Kiwis and South Africans and Australians and Indian soldiers and this great jumble. So you're automatically, if you're the Germans, you're at a, you're, you're at a disadvantage fighting there because, you know, and the, and, and they've, the British have India to their back if they're really in trouble. And yet you're having to go there to do it and you waste your shipping on doing it. That, that, I mean, in a way, retribution sort of marks that it's like the close of the parenthesis on the com- campaign, isn't it? It's like, OK, that's the end of that story. Chaps, you're, you're finished. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I also remember reading um, General Wallerman's book, and Wallerman was the head of plans at, at the OKW, you know, the, um, the, the general, combined general staff. And I can't remember if it's May 1942 or May 1943, but it was one of the, it's one of those two years where he, you know, he's doing appreciation and he's saying, you know, we, we feel that the Mediterranean and the Atlantic have equal prominence. You know, they're equally important, strategic importance. 
they're just not. I mean, you, you know, the Mediterranean is not even remotely as strategically important as the Atlantic. And, and it's incredible that they don't seem to know this. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, the the reinforcement of, of, of North Africa at this point is, yeah, as we've said, just meaningless. But, but it does it does aid because the Germans have have decided to fight there, have decided to try to close the Mediterranean uh, uh, supply lines. By reopening it, this victory in the Mediterranean does give a great boost to the Allied uh, effort at that point. I mean, I think it's only a week after retribution uh, or a few days after retribution, Cunningham signals, you know, the Mediterranean is open from Gibraltar to Alex. A a week later, the first uh, convoy passes uh, all the way from Gibraltar to Alexandria, uh, the first one in two years. Um, this opens, I mean, it cuts about 50% of, of, of the, uh, supply effort to going to, uh, going to India and the far East. Um, it, it opens up, uh, routes to the Persian, uh, Persian Gulf. It, it opens up, uh, Lend-Lease routes, uh, to Russia. So it, because it had been closed, the victory to reopen it is, is, uh, you know, not only does it destroy German, German, uh, aircraft and, and, and personnel and tanks and all that that we've discussed. But it also is a great uh, boost for, for allied shipping. And as you've said many times on your, on your podcast, you know, this is a war of logistics and shipping and material. So, um, you know, reopening the Mediterranean supply lines are, are pretty vital at this point. Well, I think it's been really fascinating to, to open the window on, on this, this episode, which I would put very good money on over ninety percent of our listeners have never even heard of, and 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 flax is the air operation, isn't it? That that sits alongside it, isn't it? Absolutely, and and that I mean we've we've discussed air power, but flax was right. you know just as retribution was so successful at sea, flax was really a, a successful operation in the air. You know, planned down to the the smallest detail, showed great cooperation between the American and, and British air forces. So yeah, and and as we've discussed, just dealt a debilitating blow to the the Luftwaffe. And of course at the same time as Operation yeah. Strike which of course is Tika's Battle of Majorda, you know, that's the that's the, the the complete victory which happens in, you know, whatever it is, 36 hours blowing yeah. aside the German troops in in its wake. We'll get around to it at some point Jim. Yeah, we'll, we'll get around to it one day. To one day. <laughs> well, listen Peter, thank you so yes, much. That's so been much, that's Peter. been brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You know, it's it's retribution has a special place in my heart. I, I've loved learning about it, so I'm, I'm glad to bring it to a wider audience. I think, um, you know, if I can leave the listeners with any note, it's you know, this is a operation that deserves uh, some memory. It's uh, when you look at the, the the records of the sailors and officers involved, this is a an operation that meant something to them. They, uh, you know, they had the memory of Greece and Crete. Uh, front and center in their minds uh and and they kind of enjoyed this operation they refer to it as the calibia regatta as they as they circled <laughs> you know fishing boats off the port of calibia right. and, and and captured enemy soldiers so um yeah just glad to bring the the retribution to a wider uh, the, the operation retribution to a wider audience Thank wow it's both. been good to see you peter thank you yeah. thanks everyone thank for you listening very much. we'll see you all again very soon bye bye cheerio